You're listening to Crossmodal, a podcast project made by neuroscience grad students curious about the philosophical, cultural, and artistic implications of certain topics from our classes and research. My name is Nico, and you'll be hearing me pop in and out through our various episodes. Hope that's all right. Each one will be somewhat unique in approach and theme, so we hope you'll stay tuned with us as we experiment through this pilot season. class, I wandered downstairs in a dream, my head spinning, but acutely, achingly conscious that I was alive. On a beautiful day, the sky a deep, deep, painful blue, wind scattering the red and yellow leaves in a whirlwind of confetti. Beauty is terror. Whatever we call beautiful, we quiver before it. That night, I wrote in my journal, trees are schizophrenic now and beginning to lose control, enraged with the shock of their fiery new colors. Someone, was it Van Gogh, said that orange is the color of insanity. Beauty is terror. We want to be devoured by it, to hide ourselves in that fire which refines us. Whew, spicy start. Thanks, Roz. That was a quote from the novel The Secret History by Donna Tartt. She writes from the perspective of the main character, Richard, who at this point in the story has been completely captivated by the vivid autumnal surroundings of his college campus. He describes his sights as beautiful and notes elements of associated terror and pain. As I read through this book for the first time, I was amused by this extreme sentiment. But now this passage lingers in my mind and it won't seem to let me rest. Beauty, what exactly goes on in the brain to cause a response this intense? Of course, what is considered beautiful will differ between individuals. For instance, a mathematician may feel something resembling Miss Tart's passage as they view a certain set of numbers, while a musician might experience these emotions while hearing a certain chord. I myself might feel these emotions while eating a bowl of cinnamon shack cereal, the greatest and most delicious food on the planet. Anyway, in addition to each of us finding different things beautiful, there's also diversity in other aspects of the mind between individuals. Even so, it's been demonstrated by researcher Dr. Samir Zeki and his colleagues that the experience of beauty, whatever that may be for each of us, is associated with the activity in certain common brain areas. Okay, cool. So that hints that there may be a common evolved pathway that the sensation of beauty seems to hijack. You know what? I would also be interested to determine how neurodivergence intersects with this phenomenon. Ms. Tart even quoted Van Gogh, who certain experts believe was neurodivergent. In this episode of Crossmodal, we'll explore these ideas through discussions with various experts in fields relevant to these topics. Special thanks to all of our speakers. Since an overarching theme here is art, and the Crossmodal Lab is full of a bunch of scientists and musicians, we'll start off by discussing how science and art can beautifully coexist in a chat with Nate Hess and Dr. Ann Martin, two amazing artist-scientists who have found unique ways to blend the two worlds together in their work. In Crossmodal fashion, the chat will also include a few tangential sides here and there about fractals in nature and tech, about beauty, about Anne's project Artsy Organ, spelled A-R-T-S-C-I, amazing pun, and a cameo from Hannah Ayu, the artist and science communicator who designed our beautiful logo. This episode's chaotic title will finally come into play with the discussion to follow about art and neurodiversity with Dr. Cliff Edwards and Meredith Carrington that you don't want to miss. 
finally, we'll close with a fun surprise that I won't spoil just yet. Please enjoy and thank you for tuning in to Crossmodal. Um, hi, everybody. My name is Ann Martin, and I'm currently a postdoc in Adam Miller's lab at the University of Oregon. And in my graduate school days, I studied chemical synapse biology with Dr. Megan Williams at the University of Utah. And there I studied a particular cell adhesion molecule and its role in building a specific type of chemical synapse. And what we found is that when we lost this molecule, we lost the ability of these specific synapses to form. And that caused there to be a great imbalance of excitation and inhibition within the hippocampus. And so that made me very curious about these different types of synapses that we have in the brain and how just a tiny shift in one type of synapse could cause such a huge difference in the ability of the brain to perform. And so moving forward, what I'm really curious about is how a neuron constructs these different types of synapses in the right numbers and in the right places in order for a brain to function properly. properly. And so especially in Adam's lab, I'm studying electrical synapses because I had no idea what they were before I came into my postdoc. And uh, they are the other form of fast transmission in the brain. So you have chemical and electrical synapses. But whereas if you're a neuroscientist, you probably have heard quite a bit about chemical synapses. We know very little about electrical synapse form and function. And so we're learning a lot more about that in Adam's lab. And then I'm hopefully going to apply that to studying different molecules that influence synapse coordination in a, in a circuit. And so that's hopefully what I'll be doing if I ever perchance become a PI. Oh, I was just saying earlier that you're answering some of the biggest questions in neuroscience. <laughs> <laughs> well, trying to get a molecular handle on them. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. And oh, I, I, Anne, we heard you have a, a dog named Wiggles. <laughs> I have a dog named Wiggles and a dog named Watney and they are both adorable. <laughs> and Nate, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, um, I'm Nate Gonzalez-Hess. I am a first year cognitive neuroscience student studying in Margaret Serena's lab at U of O, um, studying perception. I'm coming off of over a decade uh, working in fine art, mostly doing sort of um, digital solutions for problems in fine art fabrication, but I've recently moved to psychology. I'm definitely still a beginner in science, but um, have one foot in both worlds right now with my research. Right now I'm studying subjective perception of dynamic fractals. I, I do have one clarification to ask about. So in, in our emails to you, Nate, um, we would, I guess, kind of summarize your work with the phrase uh, or saying that your work is involved with the aesthetics of dynamic fractals. Um, is that correct, would you say? Just to make sure that we're using the right number. Yeah, it's tricky. Okay, I'm, I'm, um, I'm sort of, uh, mulling this over myself. Um, yeah, in an, coming from an art background, I thought of aesthetics uh, as encompassing, yeah, all things related to taste. Um, so you could talk about the aesthetics of fear or um, whatever. Um, it seems that in science and, yeah, the general pop culture discourse, aesthetics tends to do with beauty more specifically. Um, and my research is not looking only at beauty or appealingness. Um, 
So yeah, in the most recent abstract I just submitted, I um, called my research uh, the phenomenological assessment of dynamic fractals. Um, so looking at a more broader range of uh, phenomenon or subjective subjective judgments. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Um, basically, a semantic argument. I don't. I like aesthetics still, but um, or I like that term, but I think that it could be a little misleading. I am interested in studying beauty, but as as one of many uh, different perceptual uh, phenomena that I'm interested in, I am not in neuroscience in the fashion of most people here. But I'm excited to talk about fractals today. We're excited to have you both. Thank you so much for joining us today. I've been tasked with moderating the discussion here. Can you tell us about your backgrounds in art and how that may have influenced your career trajectories? I'll go first. Um, so yes, I studied uh, fine art a lifetime ago and worked in fine art for as an artist and sort of a, a generalized uh, arts mercenary for about 15 years, mostly doing sort of computational solutions for problems that and that other people had uh, in fabricating or realizing um, their, their ideas. I didn't imagine, um, or I wasn't uh, quite satisfied with that trajectory and um, decided that I had to become a scientist at some point. So about four years ago, I started making that transition and um, I'm now in my second year of graduate studies at U of O. That's exciting. I started off doing both biology and art at the University of Georgia when I was an undergrad, because I'd always had a love of both science and art. And I got into this graphic design program at the University of Georgia, and it had a pretty strict curriculum where you had to take particular classes in specific semesters. And I eventually had to graduate. And so I never could finish my science degree at the University of Georgia. And so I ended up graduating with a graphic design degree and going on and getting a job in graphic design. And that was all well and good, but I was kind of bored. <laughs> and I really miss science. And so I went back um, and studied uh, molecular biology and biochemistry uh, while working as a graphic designer at the University of Tennessee. And there uh, took enough classes in order to apply for graduate school. And at that point, I had no idea if I was going to go into neuroscience or any other form of molecular biology and biochemistry, but I tried out a few different labs. And at the University of Utah, um, there's a particular professor, Dr. Megan Williams, who was studying synapse uh, cell adhesion molecules and basically trying to figure out if there was a molecular code for how synapses link up to one another. Um, it's a popular theory that was originated by uh, Roger Sperry that we have these chemo affinity tags on synapses that cause them to uh, come together, specific types to form. And I thought, wow, that's such a uh, approachable problem. That's such a, a cool thing to study. If we can figure out the molecules that are underlie this code, we could completely figure out the brain, which of course, now I have a little bit more perspective and I know it's not that easy, <laughs> but uh, that was kind of my pathway of getting into this uh, subject matter. Yeah, it's, it's quite incredible that uh, you both have taken this trajectory where you started off at, in art and found your way back to science. This is actually a great time to hear from Hannah Ayub, a science communicator, illustrator, and friend of the podcast who designed Crossmodal's beautiful logo. 
She co-hosts the science and tech podcast, Why Aren't You a Doctor Yet? Definitely check it out. Has produced illustrations for a range of books, industry publications, logos, and more, and was awarded one of the Big Draws artist residencies in 2021. Despite being super busy with all of that, plus speaking at events and performing science-inspired comedy, Hannah agreed to tell us a bit about how she bridges art and science through her work. So Hannah, what drew you to your field? So I'm a science communicator and an illustrator, and it's been quite a winding, bumpy road to get to where I am. And I feel like I've been pushed out of fields as much as I've been drawn into them, really. Um, So I was dead set on a career in art and design as a teenager, but I was good at science and there was a lot of emphasis on science being the more stable route, the more responsible route to go down. So I ended up choosing to study um, science at A-levels, so that's a 16 to 18 in the UK. And then I studied natural sciences at university and specialised in zoology. And I loved science, I absolutely loved the content, but lab work bored me senseless um, and field work mostly tried to kill me. I'm not joking, I'm allergic to a lot of things. Um, So I ended up working in science communication, um, but still I sort of felt like I'd given up on the art side of me, um, even though I sort of continue to draw and paint and craft in my spare time. So what I love about art is quite a tricky question. To me, I know it sounds like an absolute cliche, but it feels like someone asking me, what do I like about breathing? I've always drawn pretty much since I could first pick up a crayon. Drawing has just been something I've sort of had to do. Um, I guess I've always been a very visual person. So if I have an idea, I want to get it down on paper. I want to be able to see it and tweak it and change it um, and really make it into something beautiful, I guess. Um, But steadily that stuff started to come back and I started drawing more and more and more, um, started selling some of my art. um, And that was part of a push for me going freelance uh, about three and a half years ago. And ever since then, I've worked really hard to bring art and science together in my work. um, And I've succeeded. I think in my particular form of art that I do, I'm really drawn to patterns and symmetry. And I love the power of illustration and art more widely to bring attention to things which are often neglected or unseen. Um, I think there's a lot of potential for getting people to see things in a different way. So I've now illustrated a few different um, science and maths books. I've um, done colouring pages inspired by research. I train researchers in how to use art um, in their public engagement and science communication. Um, And that's been absolutely amazing. As a science communicator, can you elaborate on the ways you use art to bridge gaps and educate audiences about science? I think it's quite an important distinction. I don't really see what I do about educating audiences um, necessarily. I see it more about engaging them with a topic and maybe doing a small bit to change relationships or perspectives on science and certain issues. I'm, I'm really more interested in how someone feels after they've interacted with one of my projects than what they necessarily remember about it, like the facts they remember about it. I think that saying that art has a lot of potential for 
turning science, which can often be quite dry and might involve a lot of jargon, into something that people can see and maybe even touch. You know, it can add real people and emotion to how we communicate science. And I think, um, speaking of things that you can touch, interactive art and craft activities can also get audiences, both adults and children, involved hands-on in exploring science and other areas like maths as well. However, I think we need to be a bit careful as art can also throw up barriers in the same way that science can. Um, so especially high art such as ballet or opera can put people off. And there's lots of people who have carried hang-ups about drawing since they were children. I've met as many people who are absolutely insistent that they can't draw as I've met people who are convinced that they will never be able to do maths ever in their lives. And I think as scientists, it can be quite easy to forget that art is also can also be intimidating. I think we're quite conscious that STEM can be intimidating. That's a great point. I often forget that science and art have similar issues to contend with in the public eye. Now, back to the discussion with Nate and Anne. We left off hearing about how our guests got into their respective fields, and Megan is moving the discussion into why science and art seem so compatible. And it's, it's amazing, like those two seem to go well together because I, I actually also love art, even though I'm in the science field predominantly. All of us, a lot of us in this group at least are fascinated with the arts as well. And so do you think like scientists are drawn to the arts uh, in some ways? Maybe it's because there's such beauty in, in nature. I think certainly they go hand in hand. I mean, we're so privileged as scientists because we get to see things that really aren't visible to most of the world. We get to look at these really, you know, carefully defined structures at these different pieces of the natural world that's just not obvious to the naked eye. And so uh, being able to have access to that, I think naturally draws us to um, the art side of things as well. And I think scientists in general are very creative people who have to come up with all of these different solutions that, uh, you know, haven't been thought of before. And so that creativity bleeds over, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. Absolutely. Also, art is sort of a more formal and rigorous discipline than it's um, often made out to be in popular culture. You know, in order to be a professional artist, you sort of have to have methods and you have to take a methodical approach to producing the product that you know that you can create, but you have to do it a certain way. Um, I think that it's been refreshing for me to move towards science because um, I think there's more leeway, um, actually, in terms of the questions that you can tackle. Professional careers in art tend to sort of limit themselves because you become successful in, in some area or another. And this is true for any career. But um, but yeah, I, uh, science and academia at large uh, is interesting because it just affords so much freedom to investigate all sorts of questions. And there are always new questions coming up. Right. And I, I also think, yeah, as both of you were saying, like, also, when you when you look into a microscope for the first time and you see like cells, uh, brain cells or any cell type, it's it's like a yeah, it's diving into another world that you don't have access to, as you as Anne was saying, outside of the field, and so it just opens up a whole other world of uh, of artistry, I guess, like of something to draw. So this is this is an interesting conversation because um, 
we know that there's a lot of fractals in nature as we're discussing. Um, before we get into the next part of this question, can you first for the general audience describe what uh, some of, can you describe some common fractals that are found in nature? I mean, the go-to, and it's such a good example, um, is always fern leaves. Uh, fern leaves, um, you know, if you think of it as sort of a feather, um, each each miniature feather on the big leaf um, looks almost exactly like the larger leaf. Um, and then each smaller feather on that feather looks almost exactly like the larger leaf. Um, Romanesco broccoli, it looks like something straight out of a computer simulation. Um, uh, even like ev most evergreen trees are quite self-similar um, down, down to the needle, at least. Interestingly, the other day, uh, someone just told me that broccoli the, has a fractal-like state due to a mutation, some genetic mutation. I don't know if that's true, which is wild because my next question for you was, uh, is, is uh, having a fractal-like state a default state? Is that what nature likes, it prefers? Um, yeah, okay. This is a tricky one um, because we have like, we have organisms and then we have physics um, or sort of yeah inanimate physics. So um, I don't know enough about physics to explain why a mountain has a fractal character. It definitely does. Like the patterns of erosion um, will have a fractal characteristic. I think um, the reason that organisms uh, often have fractal structure is about efficient encoding um, of genetic information that you're essentially um, the organism is making variations on a simple set of rules. Um, and yeah, it's about uh, repetition and then, and then small variation within that repeated form. Um, just seems efficient and like it's avoiding redundancy in the system. Um, so I, that's my guess. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense uh, because energy efficiency is so important in biology. So it makes sense that that would be why the, the state would be, a, uh, it would resort to that. I think Anne has a question. Yeah, I was just going to point out that I'm not sure if he is still here anymore, but at least uh, in 2017, there is a researcher at the University of Oregon who was studying fractal branching and how uh, in, it could be applied to solar panels because uh, the thought is for uh, flow of information through neurons, for um, like flow of energy through trees, uh, it's, it's the most efficient way uh, fractal branching is. And so they were wondering if they could apply the same logic to solar panels. And so I don't know if they're still at University of Oregon, but that was the thinking. I, I, <laughs> I get, thanks for pointing it out. And I believe the researcher is Richard Taylor, um, who is one of my advisors. Ah, well, that makes sense. Then. <laughs> He's the uh, head of the physics department at Yovo. Uh -huh. I should probably know that. <laughs> and can you speak a little bit more about fractals in the brain? You've kind of mentioned it a few times now, but I think yeah. that concept's just so cool and is definitely. I guess someone who looks at neurons all day, I feel like I might take it for granted. Yeah, it's something that I didn't really fully appreciate, um, but just neuronal morphology, if you look at a neuron, it has three distinct parts. Generally, there are neurons that don't follow this, 
Um, but so you have a cell soma, which is where you have your nucleus and uh, the kind of building block of the neuron. And then you have projections. You have an axon, uh, which uh, sends information. And then you have dendrites that receive information. And so the dendrites typically come in this really branched orientation. And uh, so you have like a single branch that then branches again and again and again. And it's thought that this branching is the most efficient way of getting through a large amount of space um, such that you can make lots of different connections with other neurons and receive it in a way that it can most quickly and efficiently get that information back to the cell soma um, and then transmit it through the axon. So um, it's just thought to be the, the molecular, not molecular, the um, cytoskeletal, I guess, logic for the way a neuron is built. And yeah, no, I think a great example is, of that is uh, the Purkinje cells in the cerebellum because they have a beautiful dendritic arbor that makes contacts with, I guess, like, I think the granule cells send projections through there and there, there could be a thousand synaptic connections in the, over there and they're the major output cell of the cerebellum. So uh they having all the information coming into that one cell through their impressive dendritic arbor is, is essential for the natural processing mm -hmm. of the cerebellum i guess and for fine-tuning uh nico you have a question go for it it's, it's more a comment than a question um oh, sure. i'm so glad that y'all are talking about fractal branching um because I was watching some documentary a really long time ago, and this scientist was talking kind of fervently about how, uh, and, and we see this all the time where things are reflected, like no matter what level of complexity you're at. So yes, we're talking about neurons, but then you also see fractal branching in terms of how humans occupy space as well and grow into environments. And it's, it's kind of creepy, but it makes sense, right? So anyway, I just wanted to quickly throw that in there. <laughs> Yeah, that's it's so wild because we it's it's like a default state at the macro scale too. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy how you can jump from something as small as a neuron to as like large as a city in one conversation talking about the same thing. Like that's just crazy. Right. Let's not even get into what subatomic <laughs> particles are doing in, in terms of like uh, awareness and things of that nature. <laughs> I mean, the other th uh, the other thing is like when you look at uh, they they've shown images of like astrocytes uh astrocyte interactions and then you look at and not only astrocytes like just neural cells in general interacting and then you look at the universe uh through images that are taken by you know i don't know different uh i don't know what the images are called I don't know what the instruments are called that actually can take the images of this, of space but we you look at outer space and it looks like the same structures are there uh, and it's just mind blowing because at the micro scale and the macro scale, there's still that same uh, pattern reiterated, I guess, and just maintained it's, or conserved, I guess. It's, it's wild. And please tell us more about your research. And we'd also love to hear about ArtSci Oregon. Yes. Yeah, totally. Um, so uh, I'll start with ArtSci Oregon because um, it's. It's something that I'm particularly passionate about having a background in both art and science. Uh, and it's also very related to this discussion of beauty and, and how we value things that are beautiful. 
um, and that we held this privileged space where as scientists, we can see things that aren't immediately obvious to the eye through looking through microscopes and other things. Um, so when I made that transition to neuroscience, and I first started being able to see neurons uh, growing on glass slides and to see these structures, the first thing I wanted to do was to share them with people. Um, and so I started drawing them and I actually ended up making an exhibit of neuroscience-based artwork um, of paintings, both watercolor and acrylic. And it started off just wanting to share um, these shapes and share how this information is, is put together. Um, but then I, I started really trying to challenge myself to get across neuroscience concepts um, through artwork. And so for instance, the idea of place cells. And so the idea that you have cells in your brain that encode where you are in space. And this idea that maybe the first time I was on this particular section of the Appalachian Trail, maybe there was a particular set of neurons in my brain that encoded that particular space. And so then I started this series of illustrating places inside uh, hippocampal neurons. And so um, I made one of uh, Zion National Park. And so you have like the outline of a CA1 pyramidal neuron and then inside the neuron is an image of the park. And so the idea being that when I was in that place, that was the cell, right? And so uh, that was one series of paintings that I did. And then I also was thinking about like this process of science and how we investigate it. And I came up with this analogy of, it's as if you were trapped behind a fence and you could only see these like tiny bits of what was behind the fence through these slats. And so you could kind of like move your head and try and see behind the fence, but really all you could see were these blurred shapes. And so your ability to understand what is behind this fence is relegated to how you can perturb what is behind the fence, right? And so like, how can you change the light? How can you like measure particular things? And so I was just illustrating fences and then slightly changing the background. Um, but I'm really intrigued moving forward, like how I could explain neuroscience ideas through artwork um, and trying to think more about uh, those sorts of problems um, because I love this idea of trying to show this experience of science through art. I, I noticed that in science, we have the ability to see these things and they're not generally shareable um, to the public. And so I wanted to get the images out there. And so what Artsy Oregon aims to do is to take things that we see as scientists. So uh, research images that we make um, and things that uh, we see in the lab and basically put them in front of the public to uh, basically get the general public interested in science through aesthetics. Um, and it's a wonderful practice for scientists as well because included within um, these images that we're putting out there in places like breweries and airports are uh, plain, simple uh, text explanations of what you're looking at. And so it's a way of scientists getting practice at explaining their science, which is a very hard thing to do um, because we're in such niche spaces. It's very difficult to explain what we do sometimes. Um, but then also it's a way of instantly attracting people to these scientific questions and thoughts because of a really cool looking image or uh, piece of data. So um, that's kind of what Artsy Oregon is about right now. Um, we're also interested in uh, holding exhibitions of 
artwork that depicts science as well. So um, in the future, I think we're going to be doing both research as art, which is images that are found in research and uh, put out into public as art, as well as art of research. So artwork that's made to explain or enhance uh, the study of science as well. So that's kind of what Artsy Oregon is all about right now. Oh my gosh, bravo, And because that is, that's incredible. And I, I love the, the um, different perspectives that you've done it on using. So going one direction to showcase art that's being used to explain science um, and the other direction and using science uh, to, that, that looks, art, looks like artwork um, and encouraging people to get excited about it. In your quest to like decipher the code of the human brain, do you think like, perception of beauty is in there? Oh gosh, this gets into consciousness, I think too, like this idea of how to biologically encode uh, these amorphous ideas um, and what neural correlates we have for thinking about these sorts of things. Um, so I think basically everything has to be brought down to a molecular and biological unit, but how that fits together, who knows? Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, um, gosh, it, it really depends upon how you define beauty um, and how you want to talk about that sort of thing. Um, when we think about how our thoughts and our experiences are generated, we know that we have to have uh, particular neurons fire. Um, for instance, if we think about ourselves within a space, we understand where we are in space by the firing of our hippocampal neurons, right? It's our hippocampal network that helps us understand where we are in space. Um, when we think about sensory uh, uh, reception, uh, we know that our visual system and our, our auditory system works through the firing of particular neurons. And so it has to be encoded on that kind of level. Um, but I think that beauty isn't something that's easily defined as like, okay, it's going to be this neuron connecting to this neuron. Instead, I think it's going to be the release of neurotransmitters in several different areas that allows us uh, to reach a certain state. Um, and so it's, the definition of that state, I think that's particularly hard for us to do. Um, so going back a little bit, and so I guess you've kind of like touched on this uh, already, and you, you've kind of described how beauty is processed in the brain, potentially. Um, this is a theory of yours, but this is not my area of research studying how beauty is encoded in the brain. <laughs> <laughs> So this understandable is understandable on my part, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean it's really fascinating how you how, how you're thinking about this and what do you think could potentially be driving differences in how we perceive beauty um, and making it subjective to us? Yeah, so uh, this is something I was thinking about, which is uh, you had another question that was written down about whether or not animals uh, could perceive beauty. Um, and what animals could perceive beauty. And looking into what the, the current uh, researchers are, are uh, thinking about right now, it seems as if while all animals perceive beauty, it might be a more interesting question to ask why we perceive beauty. Um, and in particular, whether or not there's some sort of advantage evolutionarily to uh, studying 
um, to perceiving beauty, or if it's something that just results from the way that our brains are put together. Um, and I think this is something that even Darwin had theories about as to whether or not it was natural selection or something else. And I think that kind of gets into, you know, the idea of sexual attraction and that sort of thing as well. Are, um, is beauty performing a function or is beauty something that just is? Yeah. Um, okay. So the, I wanted to touch on what Anne is saying and uh, about beauty. So basically, okay, familiarity seems to be at the core of what sometimes is perceived as beautiful and considered to be beautiful. So in this sense, do you think that perhaps like beauty evolved as uh, from a protective mechanism or like as a side effect um, in our seeking um, what we feel is familiar because that's what is safe? Oh goodness. Uh, what immediately is coming to my mind is nostalgia. I think that's uh, something that personally I feel very strongly in regards to, uh, to beauty is uh, thinking about the familiar things that I experienced in my childhood. Those are definitely the things that I'm gravitating towards as I'm older. And so I, I think that there is something about that familiarity, which is attractive but whether or not that's a feature of beauty or not, oof, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating because on the flip side, sometimes like be something being unique uh, or standing out draws us in. And that's like, especially, um, you know, like sought after in the modeling industry in some ways where somebody, something unique about that individual is why they've been chosen to be a model and why they've become a supermodel in some ways. Um, and so that's a whole other side of it, of like being drawn into something that's unique and unfamiliar, that fascinates us, that captivates us. Um, and, and that's seen as beautiful as well. So it's interesting, there's those two flip sides to this. Absolutely, I think that gets back to our idea of talking about focus. Um, and grabbing our attention and wanting to keep us looking at something. Um, yeah, I think that both of those qualities are tied up in beauty and both contribute to our appreciation of it. It's, this is a little tricky because I'm sort of I'm thinking about my training as an artist and personal evolution um, in terms of taste. Um, I think... Uh, appreciation for beauty um, the 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 fact that beauty exists or that um, a, a person um, places uh, the label of beauty or the experience of beauty on certain things is fairly universal but I think that taste is quite strongly learned um, and this is I mean why familiarity um, is is critical um i think that beauty is one of these things that becomes richer with age and experience um i'm just based on my own experience it seems that um there is always more beauty um uh with experience that beauty can be uh, appreciated more deeply um and then i also think that there are cultural trends in what's considered beautiful that affect everyone. Um, in Fractal's research, um, the, the findings from 10 or more years ago indicate 
that people have preference for sort of moderately complex fractals. Um, most of the recent findings are more showing that people have preference for the simplest fractals or things that are actually not fractal, that are completely smooth. Um, and I think that my guess is that this relates to the sort of visual economy of you know, logos and emojis um, and all of that be becoming sort of more present, that that is the natural reality. Um, and yeah, on the complete flip from that, um, I was, I, I just climbed uh, North Sister with classmates a couple of weeks ago and up at the top, um, it was extremely beautiful, but also terrifying and not, um, not familiar in any sense besides that I have built up this idea that what I'm, that, that, that experience is beautiful. Um, and yeah, so I, I mean, I really don't know where it starts or ends, but I do tend to think that, that, uh, beauty is, or appreciation for certain things is learned. Um, like, like, um, people learn to appreciate the tastes of different foods and so forth. Well, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um, I love the distinction between beauty and taste. I think that those two are, are really interesting to think about. Oh, and actually there is one so connection to a question I asked earlier to Anne um, that I want to ask to Nate as well with regards to his research. And that is, um, so a lot of us are, you know, we're mesmerized by fractal art. And so uh, when a lot of us look at fractals, yeah, we're mesmerized by it, but also there's sort of a comforting thing and, and it kind of draws you in and you're kind of getting comforted by it. And um, I wonder if because fractals are so common in nature and there's something that's seen as familiar to us that we've become comfortable in seeing uh, a computer generated fractal, for instance. Yeah, my answer is a little different. Um, I think it is about familiarity. Um, so I think the appreciation of media is a lot about, or of, of creative information is a lot about um, predicting structure and being rewarded that you're predicting the structure more or less correctly, but then also being surprised within that structure. So you're predicting it but then things are arising that you don't quite expect. So like this is true for music, um, very true for comedy. Um, you'll be kind of with it and then the comedian will surprise you with something, a twist on what you've understood. Um, I think when looking at a fractal zoom um, in particular, um, your same structure that you basically understand and then you're being su surprised by changes to the structure, uh, but there's no sort of, um, break in the rhythm. This is the smooth transition, um, which I think makes it mesmerizing that you can remain locked in. There's nothing to burst the bubble of expectation and surprise, really. Oh, okay. That's really interesting to think about. Yeah, I didn't realize that. That explains, that would explain a lot of it, why you're like kind of engaged so closely with it. I think as humans as well, we are seekers of patterns. Um, we, mm -hmm. we get most of our information about the world through searching for patterns and evaluation of patterns. Um, I mean, just from our very first interactions when we're super, super young, we're learning 
what is normal and what is not and trying to figure out the pattern in people's behavior, um, patterns and numbers, patterns and everything. And so uh, learning how patterns break and getting lost in patterns just seems like a natural fascination for us in general. Yeah, that's a great point. This is so much fun. I, I thought that an hour and a half was a long time. I'm like, we could use three hours. Yeah. <laughs> this is the flow we were talking about earlier. When you have a good conversation, that's a beautiful thing also, isn't it? Right, right. It's fun to have like these subjects that we aren't, like I'm in no way connected with the study of beauty, but thinking about yeah. it from the neuroscience perspective is just a lot of fun. Yeah, that's exactly why we have this podcast because we all like discussing these concepts that we don't work on <laughs> in our labs. Absolutely. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you and we, we do hope you can join us again uh, in a future episode. We, we have so many things we can discuss with you. Art and science are closely intertwined and both realms have allowed humans and other organisms to explore the world. Quick aside, did you know that bears are known for taking paws to take in scenic views and marvel at nature? Anyway, the cross lab has a zeal for art, which instigated some questions. What in our brains makes us create art and find art beautiful? Is science collectively art? During the discussion, Andrew us down a path of beauty and science, a scientist's privileged insight into the world at different scales, and thus new perspectives and perceptions that they may have to share. Nate also appreciates the creativity in both art and science. However, he emphasized that science allows for venturing into the unknown. Nate reflected upon fractals, a repeating and never-ending pattern, and highlighted examples in nature such as fern leaves, Romanesco broccoli, and even evergreen trees. It's interesting that fractal branching in nature appears to be a more efficient state. We see this in the brain, inside of which our neurons display fractal branching in their regions that receive information from cells before them. This is freaking cool. Like, in a part of the brain called the cerebellum, certain cells called Purkinje neurons have signature super complex fractal branches. If you zoom out and look at the whole cerebellum, you'll even see that it possesses a large scale structure called the arbor vitae, a fractally branched tree-like structure. For once, the scientific name of a brain region actually relates to what it looks like. Oh. Anyway, this area resembles a fern, which remember are also fractals. Fractals also go beyond nature. In fact, and this was particularly interesting to me as I am Nigerian, but there are ancient cities in Africa, such as Benin City in the Edo state of Southern Nigeria, that were intentionally designed with fractals in mind, all the way from the city level down to the rooms of homes. Moving along, we branched off, pun intended, into science communication with the discussion of Artsy Oregon, founded by Anne. Artsy Oregon introduces and shares the beauty of science to a general audience through art, a lot of the podcast staffers are trained in molecular biology, so we asked Anne how biology encodes beauty in the brain, and her answer is actually related to a future episode of Crossmodal, where we'll discuss the wackiness of perception. Spoiler alert and stay tuned. Back to this topic though. Why is beauty subjective within the brain and does it serve some biological purpose? These questions remain unanswered, interestingly, yet it's understood that beauty is a universal experience. In fact, some people from earlier times became engrossed in the pursuit of beauty to the point of being labeled as mad or experiencing madness. This is also reflected in the latter portion of the book quote we opened up the episode with. Here's a refresher. That night I wrote in my journal, trees are schizophrenic now and beginning to lose control, enraged with the shock of their fiery new colors. Someone, was it Van Gogh? said that orange is the color of insanity. 
Beauty is terror. We want to be devoured by it, to hide ourselves in that fire which refines us. Let's explore this in the next section of this episode. We discuss with Dr. Cliff Edwards and Meredith Carrington how the term madness, in reference to beauty and or fixations on it, may just be a distorted view of the varied experiences of neurodiverse communities. Let's get into their thoughtful perspectives on our investigation into beauty and how it motivates us with the experiences of Van Gogh and Meredith's son. So, are you ready to start? <laughs> ready to start. Um, I'm your host for this afternoon. Um, and today I'm with Dr. Clifford Edwards and Ms. Meredith Carrington, um, and I don't know if you would like to introduce yourselves and just tell us a little bit about who you are and your area of expertise. Uh, Cliff Edwards, and I know I'm the oldest person in this room. <laughs> uh, I'll be 88 in about two weeks, and I'm still teaching full-time, uh, still doing my research. So I'm an experiment of my own here, <laughs> seeing how long you can keep going and still be engaged in things. So I've been here 50 years, and I'm in the field of religion and the arts, and Van Gogh is sort of my specialty area. Uh, my name is Meredith Carrington. Um, I'm the senior graphic designer here at the Institute for Contemporary Art at BCU. Um, I am also uh, the proud parent of a neurodiverse 11-year-old young man with autism, Um, and um, he has really opened my eyes to neurodiversity, and one reason I was attracted to this particular um, project at the ICA was their value of diversity across lots of different areas, Um, so hoping to just bring that layperson's perspective. Wonderful. Um, the topic of our episode today is going to be beauty and madness from a neuroscientific and cultural perspective. Um, so to kind of break the ice, um, I would like to ask you, um, why do you believe that at least among the lay population, on average, madness of some sort tends to be seen as linked to artistic, scientific, and mathematical accomplishment or creativity? Can you say it once more in sort of other terms, maybe? Yes. Well, in the popular mind, um, there's sort of almost a myth, I guess you could say, of how great achievements and great creativity, whether in artistic fields or even in STEM as well, are often linked to some type of what we call madness, um, sort of a broad term. And so our main question is, why do you believe that that myth arose in the first place? Is there any basis to it? I mean, often people who are very much into a specific topic or a specific way of acting that's probably not viewed as normal uh, seem to themselves be focused on one thing in a way that most of us never find ourselves caught up, perhaps. and I think it puzzles us because we're human beings and we're interested in uh, the tremendous variety of human being. Absolutely, I would echo uh, Dr. Edwards' sentiments. In my personal experience with individuals on the autism spectrum, um, I've really seen firsthand how they truly experience the world differently. 
um, through their senses, through its sensory perception. And I think that having an incredibly heightened sense of, let's say, sound could lend itself to composing an incredible work of art musically or an extreme, an extremely heightened sense of sight could um, lend itself to exploring colors, you know, through different mediums in ways that others have not. And often you see folks kind of on the, always on the verge of something new and something different that others haven't quite done because of that intensity of those senses. Um, this next question is more for Dr. Edwards' um, perspective. Um, as you mentioned earlier, you've written very extensively on Van Gogh's life and art. Um, and we were wondering, based on your research, um, how would you describe his psychological response to an understanding of beauty? Um, and kind of explain to us how that differs from this popular image people tend to have of him as just the crazy artist who cut off his ear, for example. Yeah, I think pretty soon when one starts looking into the life and work of Van Gogh, the crazy artist stuff sort of fades into the background. Uh, did he do a lot of peculiar things? About as many as we do, I, I think. Uh, but there's a real sense that um, looking at him, one gets, or I get, a tremendous sense of creativity. That things open up for him that I wish would open up as easily for me. Uh, when he was young, his sisters said he was a sort of naturalist. He was always out hiking and finding living things. And one of his great collections was a collection of bird nests. But as you develop that interest, in later life, if he got into an argument with some other artist uh, to make up for the argument, he would often give them a bird's nest. Uh, and he carefully explains that he thinks birds are tremendous artists, that they make these homes of theirs variously out of uh, whatever is available, and he considers them weaving their homes not unlike him weaving a painting. And so it became a way of his talking about his painting. I weave my paintings, and you sort of see the lines he uses when he, when he does paint. Uh, so uh, I guess my sense is I suddenly realize he's more focused and more sensitive to many things that we see and leave pretty quickly without analyzing them or without maybe appreciating them uh, the way he did. So, uh, again, uh, it's this sense of creativity that comes across to me. Creative in a way that a lot of people might not attach themselves to, but nevertheless, very creative. That's fascinating. Another sort of popular mindset that many people have about um, very creative individuals in the arts and sciences is that they're almost inspired by sort of divine madness. Um, and from your perspective as a religious studies professor, um, as well as an expert on Van Gogh, do you think that there is any credence in that? Again, um, 
my interest is the words we use. And of course, we're creating all of this. So I can remember uh, when my son was a little guy, uh, it was about 1996, and that's when the Harry Potter novels were coming mm -hmm. out. And if we just focused on them for a little bit, and I went down to Barnes and Noble, and here were a thousand kids with 400 page books under their arms, uh, talking about, all talking about the same thing that they were fascinated in. And we could easily either see that as a peculiarity of our culture, you know, what just happened? And so this sense of uh, a period when books meant everything to so many young people. Imagine reading eight volumes of 400-page books uh, with difficult vocabulary and sticking with it. Uh, I thought we were into a new era that students, youngsters, were going to be reading like crazy. And all of a sudden, poof, it faded out. Uh, so I don't know what to make of these things that come and go, uh, and whether we fashion words to say, oh, that's, let's call it this, or let's call it that, and suddenly that becomes the reality. And we're not talking about what's happening anymore, we're talking about our own language and how we use language. Again, I guess I'm saying, because my chief course I teach is in Zen Buddhism. And in Zen Buddhism, basically it's saying most of us live our lives in the language we make, not in the real stuff of life itself. And Zen very much prefers that you give up the language if it's becoming uh, a burden to your creativity. Um, I guess one of the, the final questions that I personally have, again, it's more for Meredith. Um, of course, um, the autism spectrum is very broad, very diverse, and so you can't make any one generalization about people in this population. Um, but I was curious, um, based on your son's experiences, um, how his unique sensory perceptions influence you know, how he perceives beauty or pleasant things and how he's um, able to interact with the world around him and how those might differ from, say, your perceptions of what is beautiful. I know that's a kind of tricky question. Um, no, no, I mean, it. again, I'll go back to the sensory perception. I mean, I think that that really influences the things that he truly enjoys um, and the things that are not enjoyable to him. An example, you know, um, he verbally expressed that he did not like to walk down the spice aisle at the grocery store because, you know, all of us may walk down that aisle and maybe you smell like a little, like, kind of cinnamon, like, you just, like, close your eyes and kind of imagine yourself, like, a kind of spice, kind of essence. He smells every spice individually at the same time, right? And so he said it's just... I can't walk down that aisle. It's just so overwhelming. Oh All of the smells. And, you know, as he got older and he was able to start verbalizing, because for quite some time he couldn't, the things he was able to tell me were just incredible. Like, for instance, um, when his sister sings, 
Which, you know, she's younger and silly and, you know, plays the role of the younger sister, which is annoyance sometimes. <laughs> he says it makes him vibrate inside. And, you know, so he's just really experiencing all the senses, touch, sight, smell, sound, very differently. And um, I'm trying to think of the wonderful things that he thinks are beautiful you know, heavy pressure, which is a little bit stereotypical of folks in the spectrum, but it is true for him. Um, you know, people that hug very hard are his favorite people. <laughs> and he, that's a beauty thing for him. So, like, for instance, then weighted blankets that we found was a great strategy for him. You know, that feels really wonderful. He used to um, unzip the uh, cushions on our sofa and like get in there. Oh my goodness! Like with that foamy filling stuff, and um, it just felt good to be really surrounded by things, and that felt like amazing to him. I've just seen the world in such a different way because of the way he's been able to describe these things. Yeah, that's like one of my favorite things is you know asking him, you know how. He's experiencing, you know, like new settings. So we went to New York City a few years ago, I guess two years ago. And um, again, smell related, you know, he was just overwhelmed. I thought, you know, the people or the traffic that would be maybe, and maybe sometimes we use headphones. Um, and he was just like walking around with his fingers <laughs> oh. and his nose. And he was like, all of these smells. And he was smelling like sewage and oh. hot dog trucks, like all the same time. Oh. And it was like two, like this mashup of like interesting, you know. Also, the extreme screeching of like um, when you get on the subway and it's breaking to stop at the station that like, like really high pitch and like having to define that, oh, that's not like. A horrible, like nothing bad's gonna happen. That's how it's supposed to sound. And I do think that because he is neurodiverse in that way, and it's outside of how neurotypical folks experience the world, it could be. I, I can see why people could describe it as madness to some degree. You know, especially um, sometimes as, as in adulthood, especially, you know, when a smaller child is maybe having these fixations, um, some, it's, you know, more permissible. Um, and isn't it into adulthood, you know, some folks on the spectrum or some folks that have um, struggled with mental illness, you know, have these really intense sensory perceptions as well. And I think that there is a little transition to that being described as more of a, a madness than just like a curiosity. It does conform right. to those patterns of what we call normal. Exactly. And I think we're much more flexible with children yes. and falling outside of the boundaries of what is normal. You know, we even encourage that to some degree. But in adulthood, unfortunately, and I think that's really where why being an ally to the neurodiverse is really important to me is thinking about what it like will be like for him as an adult. And hopefully the understanding that people are bringing to him as a child in like the educational setting or in social settings can then transition to folks being more understanding to adults that experience the world in a different way. But just these like intense, it's just the, the intensity. And I can imagine for especially like visual artists that could potentially be on the spectrum, 
the, the way in which they are experiencing the world inspiring them. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I mean, madness sometimes is a hard word for me to wrap my mind around, but inspiration, absolutely. Yes. You know, I think they're, they are receiving input and inspiration that we are not. And it's kind of attentiveness, I mean, yes. which is very hard to come by in our day, but <laughs> yeah. to have somebody who could really attend to something but that attentiveness, I think, is also part of an artist's creativity. They attend to something as subtle as a color change or a, a, a certain mass or who knows what. Uh, but yeah, I again, I think we maybe get too locked into our own language, which says I'm playing a language game now, and what we're talking about is we talk language about language, so we're not talking about what's behind the language <laughs> anymore. Dr. Edwards, how did you get interested in Van Gogh? Uh, I don't even know. <laughs> uh, I know that when I was a boy, I had some posters of his work hanging in my room. I didn't know who he was. I knew I liked those posters. But I'm not even sure that's connected, because... Then, I don't know what happened next, but uh, at some point, uh, I had a, a day with nothing to do, and I went to a bookstore, and I bought a, a complete Van Gogh. It was on sale for like $9, you know, one of these big books. And I just sat down and read it. And reading it, I suddenly put together his images and his words. So I'm as equally impressed by what he writes, 900 letters, uh, intimate letters, because they're not to us, they're to his younger brother. So we have 900 letters he wrote to his younger brother about whatever he was thinking whenever he was doing a painting like Starry Night. In a sense, the Starry Night painting is an interest to me right now because he never called it Starry Night, and he never thought of it as Starry Night. So we've made up, or Don McLean made up for us, that that's Starry Night. And uh, what he and his brother called it was a village in the moonlight. And I'm saying, all of a sudden that changes what it is, because we're dealing with language now, we're not dealing with the experience. And so I'm saying, I think we get the painting wrong because it's really a sort of nested village uh, down in a little hollow and then the sky taking over from there. So the sky is there, but it's really a painting of a village. And then it's not even the village he was looking at. He's in the asylum when he sees this. So he's in an asylum. He sees it through the bars on his window, and he decides in the morning he's going to paint what he saw. And he doesn't quite paint what he saw. He saw that French village, which is a little town called Saint-Rémy. But that's not Saint-Rémy. That's a Dutch village, and that's where he's brought up in Holland. And so he's allowing his own mind and his fingers he talks a lot about the touch when you're painting. He thinks that's wonderful. That, that like hugging, I guess, that, that touch means something to him. 
So there's a lot of uh, physical stuff and a lot of mental stuff all mixed together, it seems to me, in our talking about an artist or any human being. I mean, I was so impressed by what you were saying. It was so much a matter of the body. I mean, we tend to almost forget the body sometimes. Yes, really. Um, you know, one wonderful example of that kind of hugging and pressure thing, you know, if you're familiar with the story, you know, Temple Grandin. And, um, you know, she basically made this squeeze machine. Um, so she, you know, was this in- incredible, you know, animal advocate and worked mm-hmm. in the, you know, the cattle industry and had seen how pressure, depressure, calm down animals. And so she made a machine basically in her dorm room when she was at this like boarding school she got sent to in high school. And it basically was the same thing. It came on both sides where she got down her hands and her knees and it came on both sides where it would squeeze her. Um, and she built this thing because she had this amazing mind for engineering and design. And um, and she used it for like decades. And then um, I actually had the good fortune of seeing her talk just this past weekend. And she, um, someone asked her, she was still using her squeeze machine. And she said, it broke about 10 years ago and I haven't gotten around to fixing it because I now enjoy hugging people. (laughs) And, you know, but it took her, she's in her 70s, you know, and it took her that long to like, you know, feel comfortable with that or be okay receiving a hug from another person. But that sensory input, you know, has been such a theme. That's fascinating. Um, I mean, I know I personally just learned a ton. But also thinking about Van Gogh and artists like uh, Monk and Francis Bacon. Um, and just thinking about how unique their art tends to be and how people associate them oftentimes with this strange idea that we turn madness or whatever and how things aren't quite that simple we're limiting our, ourselves if we use a word like that and you picked out three artists that are totally together i mean both monk and the other one you mentioned was uh the guy who painted van gogh actually uh did some paintings of van gogh it's almost like people group together and uh and see something in particular people that they don't see elsewhere mm-hmm. and make their own little group, even if it happened years apart, they, yeah. they meet somehow. There's this uh, artist on the autism spectrum that I'm particularly like kind of sand burling right now, this um, gentleman, he's a young man um, named Stephen Wiltshire. Um, you'll have to go check him out. So he is um, Skyline. Yeah. Yeah. So he um, he self-identifies as being on the autism spectrum, and he does these things. He has a you know a, a photographic memory, and so he started drawing. You know, he could see anything for just a split second, and then draw it with like a photographic you know deep perfect camera, I think he kind of got like a nickname, like um, the human camera. And so what he's done is different cities have commissioned him and so he'll go to come to like New York City and he'll go in a helicopter for 20 minutes and take like a little zip around and then they just leave him in a gallery with a pen and he draws everything in exact detail in the entire city. Um, And it's just that like... You know, and he, too, I mean, he had to, they said, you know, he'd never speak, and 
you know, he needs to be institutionalized and all these things that maybe like would be synonymous with that theme of let's say disability, but really just um, neurodiverse and experiencing the world in a very different way and then making like beauty out of it. So he's a good one to check out. Cool. Um, okay, so we wanted to dive into another question that we've actually asked all of our team members to answer in this podcast episode, and that is, what do you find maddeningly beautiful? So I have like a weird one. I went through this like phase for a very, very long time. I've just got out of on like Monday, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so for a really long time, I was obsessed with chapstick. I know this sounds like so oh, stupid. And it was like, I think it was honestly to the point of like obsession or madness. Like if someone was talking about chapstick, I had to put it on. Like something about soft lips was just like so soft lips <laughs> was so like satisfying to me. Like I guess I would consider like that sensation like maybe beautiful. I never really thought about it like that before. I would do everything at all costs to avoid my lips being dry. And I, I fell in love with chapstick brand chapstick, I guess at a very young age. And <laughs> I would keep the tubes. So I would use them down to the very end. But chapstick brand has all these different flavors. So I would keep the tubes. I had all these tubes throughout high school. I took them all with me to college, and I kept expanding my collection. I moved to Richmond with these empty chapstick tubes, swear to God. Switched three different apartments with the empty chapstick tubes. I always kept them on my nightstand so that, like, I was always next to chapstick while I was sleeping. Like, I always had chapstick in my purses, my backpacks, like, pockets of coats. Like, every coat pocket I have has at least a chapstick in each pocket. Like, it is madness. I will admit that. And so I'm moving to Oregon. It's a big move. And we have a pod. So we're trying to, like, downsize. And finally, I was like, I'm going to throw out the chapstick tubes. I maybe kept, like, I will say maybe, like, 12. But I counted. I had 207 empty chapstick tubes by the end of maybe, like, this 12-year journey of being addicted to chapstick. Wow. Did you... Perform a parting ceremony. Uh, <laughs> so if you follow Chapstick on Instagram, like a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people post these pictures, like, "Oh, I have 38 tubes," and I'm just like, "Dude, like, I have you beat." Yeah, I was always te- I ha- do have pictures somewhere in my phone. Oh I'm like, my goodness! Yeah, just <laughs> Firstly, Chapstick Corporation thanks you. Yes. Yes. this is an ad for Chapstick. Secondly, it is. It was it was genuinely crazy, and like people thought it was so funny but it was just like such like a an aspect of my life that was so like deeply rooted that like it wasn't even comical to me like looking back now like I see the humor and like this girl with like a box of empty tubes but like I didn't do it to be funny like I did it because like I for some reason could not throw those out like they were just like so critical in my life and like it was so I would even buy tubes like that I knew I didn't like so not to dish chapstick brand, but they'll... <laughs> Certain flavors were not... They'll the, do this thing, the they'll repeat ones. the flavor. So you'll have, like, strawberry. I don't like the strawberry one at all. But then they'll do, like, the ice cream collection. And the wrapping's oh, yeah. different, but it'll be strawberry ice cream. It's the same flavor. chapstick as the strawberry one. I know I'm not going to like it, but I still buy it because the, the wrapping's different. I'll put it in my little box, and that would be it. Like, <laughs> and if I ever needed it, I would use it. Like, they were all opened. 
Yeah. Are you sure you didn't throw away any valuable specimens? <laughs> I kept them. So I have my favorites, white hot chocolate. Ooh. And I was dating this guy before I moved to Virginia. And his parting gift to me was like six unopened white hot chocolate <laughs> chapsticks. And they had discontinued what them. For you? They had discontinued <laughs> them well. like two years prior. Whoa. And he went on eBay and he's like, I bought you the last six that I could find oh on the internet. Oh my god. Oh my <laughs> I still have one unopened one. That is awesome. That I am bringing with me to Oregon. This is like an epic saga of the chocolate. <laughs> But it was like, that's how... romantic gesture to beat. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) But that's how, like, deeply rooted it was in my life. Like, that was the best gift I've ever received. What did it start? Like, what age? I was young. It must have been, like, um... Who was the first person to gift you the chapstick? I think I was obsessed with those, like, lip smackers. Yeah, I was too. I collected them as well. Yeah, so I collected those, and I think, like, once they weren't... Like, I don't want to say cool anymore, because then I went to Chapstick, which is, like, not cool at all. But, like, once the Lip Smackers, like, fell through, I think I really fixated on the Chapstick. But still, like, I have, like, nightmares of my lips being dry. And, like, I would lick my lips, like, obsessively to the point where I would have the red around my mouth. It was so embarrassing. Wow. Yeah. So, like, something about, like, that sensation, to me, is, like always something that I guess like internally I I would consider beautiful and I think it it has driven me to madness (laughs) that is excellent example it's nothing so, like quantum entanglement. No, like, I wish geez. I had that. Still, I mean, these so things sure. can't really be compared to each other. That's just as magnificent as, as finding quantum entanglement beautiful, honestly. But I will say really that if you away. can send me a picture of the like 200 chapsticks, yes. so that that can be the thumbnail for this episode. Oh, yes. Without context, the chapstick changed to beauty, madness, and chapstick. Oh, actually, that would be an important parenthesis. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not even kidding. I think we should. Like that's that's going to be the thumbnail. We're going to put a note right that now. That is a great idea. Oh my God. <sighs> but I, like, I've gotten to the point where I don't have to act on it. Like, I threw oh, them all away. I'm good now. Away. I don't know what happened. Maintain some control. Mm-hmm. It was like some weird, like, f- switch was flipped. So that was only Monday. Right? Yeah, I think about this <laughs> okay. week. It was what a big happened? deal for me. It was because of the move? Yeah, packing? like, something about the move. I was like, I don't use these empty tubes. <gasps> and, like, I realized that... Maybe it was this episode was kind of like, Kristen, like, this is maddening. Like, you carry around. I've moved multiple times with empty chapstick But at tubes. the same time, it's I not impairing really. your ability to function in society. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's what Chris says. He's like, so, I have all the things to be addicted to. Like, that's there are worse things. It's not yeah, bad It's not thing. bad. It's not. Some people are addicted to Chipotle. <laughs> and it shows. <laughs> that's an interesting framework, though. Collection as mm-hmm. a presentation of your yeah that's true something you just find beautiful yeah because there's really no need to like hold on to these objects so at least in my case like they were literally empty they were not useful you've just recontextualized something a few things that i ignored and thought (laughs) weren't important but maybe they are well i guess one thing that i personally have always perceived as beautiful since i was pretty much an infant as far as i know has been music in terms of how I respond to it, always a very strong emotional response if I connect with the music. It's kind of difficult to describe, but especially when I sing, it's almost like my consciousness shifts into a different setting, for lack of a better term. Like, especially if it's something like choral singing, where you have to really concentrate on blending with your peers and you're following a conductor. And it's almost... 
I would say transcendent in a way. Like some of my truest religious experiences, I'd even say, have come, you know, from music primarily. And I'm not sure if I'd call my response to it madness per se, but I do sometimes get obsessive about music that I really like. Um, I was that kid who would always just go around singing for no apparent reason. You know, and whenever I was in the practice rooms or in the studio taking voice lessons back when I was in undergrad in high school, like it would affect my time perceptions as well. And so I just get kind of locked up in it. And then, oh, two hours have passed. I think words are very beautiful. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, I've always been a little bit of a marcher to my own beat. I like to express that in words, and I like to read other people's writing. I don't know, it's just something that's always been with me, just like music has. That's one that pretty much everybody said, which is interesting. Okay, so... Um... Okay, so this is the one I think is incredibly beautiful. I think about this a lot. Uh, so quantum entanglement. <laughs> so I'd li I, I like the... Um, okay, so in general, I currently study uh, cellular communication. But So it's cell-cell communication through secreted factors. Um, I've always thought it was really interesting to look at um, communication, just long-distance communication uh, in the body. Um, and so... I, in those in those terms, you can actually tell what is secreted. You can tell you know the what is the mode of the I guess the um, medium that allows for the communication. But with uh, quantum uh, quantum entanglement, which has been like an idea that's proposed to explain a lot of different phenomena, uh, in that there isn't like I don't know what the substance is that's allowing for the communication. It drives me a little bit crazy to think Nobody about. Knows. Yeah, Nobody no one knows. knows, and it just drives me crazy, and it's just very interesting to think about. And so I just like also, I think that the thing that I found incredibly beautiful about that is that there's communication even down to that level, that subatomic level, and that these particles, we don't know what the mechanism is for their communication, um, but it's interesting that there's like this inherent need for connectivity to occur for, to maintain existence. And I think that's just, that's just a beautiful thing. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's where I'll end it there. That's the one thing I... So here coming back to quantum, I'm not looking at, at the quantum level, but just I really, really love light as in as an abstract concept, as the actual visualization of light. So I've lived in urban areas. I live in rural areas. Light is you'll find light in both places. Sunlight filtering through trees and the leaves. Mm -hmm. Light coming off of the city lights. I love those. I just... I get this really warm feeling just from looking at like going down a dirt road in the country and seeing like the light coming through the leaves mm -hmm. and it brings back this feeling of warmth like I actually used to live on Long Island in New York when I was from when I was like two until I was 12 and I remember one day going we were going to this one bay area and we were it was like going through a lot of different like woodsy areas I can remember like the light coming off of the trees and I had my eyes closed and I could just feel it shining down and the warmth from it. I will say quickly that that's literally one of mine too, that I just, <laughs> yeah. just typed down. So specifically one example, since you mentioned filtering through the trees, that's one for me, but natural light filtering in through a window and then you can see dust particles suspended. Oh, that's what I was gonna that ask. honestly will make me It'll give me pause. Like, I will stop mm. that. I used to do that when I was younger. When I was, like, about three or four, I remember I'd sit, like, playing mm. by myself. 
and there'd be light from the filter into the window, and I see the dust particles, and I'm like, wow, I could... Oh, how, what level am I looking at this? Like, what level of particle, what kind of particles are in the dust <laughs> now? I know it's dead skin, so... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I feel like I get really wrapped up in the, in just the feeling of the light. Like, like, I've been thinking about it more from a neuroscientist perspective. Like, why is it? This is supposed to be solely a visual kind of input into my brain, and I'm receiving back, oh, I'm feeling light, time to adjust, like, different action potentials and feedback to all the different parts of what you're seeing. But I'm also getting a pleasurable experience from feeling light or seeing light. So um, there's this one instance that I'll describe right now. Hopefully I can do it, give it justice. But it was, let's say, 2 or 3 a.m. Um, when I was in college and I was staying up late in the library studying for finals. AKA not really studying at all, just being stressed for hours. So I yeah. eventually had to just give up because I wasn't getting anything done. So I decided to walk to my apartment um, and it was here at VCU. So uh, it was, I was walking through Monroe Park and then I crossed Belvedere and then went down Franklin Street. It was about 3 a.m. There was nobody else outside. There weren't even any cars outside. It was just me and then the trees and stuff like that. Um, but then I noticed that it started to snow and I looked up and I see the yet this yellow stream of light coming out of a street lamp and then in the light just snowflakes still completely oh, still yeah. what for what seemed like hours so it turns out I had stopped and was staring at this light for I don't know how long but mm. time was mo modified my perception of time was modified to where I thought it was hours and hours and hours when it could have just been 30 seconds or less um, and I see that all the time <laughs> Like all the time I see it in my mind. So that's probably the most beautiful thing I've ever seen ever, 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 ever. And it won't leave me alone. I have a few examples of a time that I would probably remember feeling mad, at least mad in a <laughs> controlled manner. One was towards the end of the organic chemistry class in college when... I was looking at the roadmap in the back of the organic chemistry book, and it has all the reactions and all the arrows for going from an alkane to an alkene to a carbonyl to a hal halogenated group, and the extreme grasp I had on all those pathways. I knew every pathway very well, and I knew how to take one chemical species to another and back. I wish I remembered it all now, but the, but the, the power I felt over the forces of chemical reactions by means of having intimate knowledge of all those organic chemical pathways and all the rules and the reagents that one would use to take one species to one, to another, to another, and back in order to make almost anything you can imagine, at least in theory, and that was a form of controlled madness, I think. I, I would stay up until three in the morning doing these roadmaps in the back of the, of the Shelby Foot, not Shelby Foot, that's a historian, in the, in the, in the Foot book. His name was Foot. Uh, I, was, I, was, I would stay up doing, doing those problems and certainly wasn't out of my mind, but I felt a little bit deranged for sure. Um, so what do I find maddeningly beautiful? Um, I think pattern, pattern is the thing that just taps right into something in my brain and my heart. Um, 
and I just absolutely love it. I especially love rotational symmetry. Um, so whether that's in nature, you know, things like um, pattern in a sunflower or a nautilus shell, but also things created by people like mandalas. So I've always, well, not always. So for a long, long time, mandalas have been um, a really key part of my artwork, I guess my art practice. I first started doing henna or mendi tattoos when I was 12. Um, so the, these are temporary tattoos created using a uh, plant-based paste, um, which is really core to Indian culture, which I grew up in, and lots of other cultures around the world as well. Um, and a lot of the traditional Indian patterns are mandalas. They're these um, you know, really intricate circular shapes. And then also with things like paisleys and intricate flowers and leaves. Um, and that's very much sort of, I guess, where my particular love of pattern really grew. And then if you throw in a biology degree on top of it, um, and yeah, I just absolutely love pattern. Um, love it. Love finding patterns, love creating patterns. So there are two things that come to mind. Okay, so uh, one of them is uh, if I'm ever hiking and uh, I come to a viewpoint, a vista, uh, just looking out over the series of trees and mountains, uh, that's maddeningly, maddeningly beautiful when you get the scale and the grandeur of your surroundings. But the other one, of course, I would have to say the brain, of course. <laughs> because uh, just staring constantly at different structures within the brain, it's, yeah, you can totally spend a lifetime doing that. It's maddeningly beautiful. Maddeningly because it's so frustrating trying to figure out uh, how everything fits together. Um, and beautiful, of course, because neuronal structures are just lovely. Great answer. We all, we all, we can relate to the, the oh, for, sure. Part, for sure. I can also relate to the hiking part, but um, something you said about the maddeningly beautiful part of, of loving the brain and finding it beautiful, I found interesting. Um, so it almost seems like the frustration, it sounds like, of trying to figure out the brain is part of what makes it beautiful. Do you think that's the case? Yeah, I think complexity in general uh, is a big part of beauty. Um, I think that as animals, we are constantly looking for information and patterns and we want more and more information. And so when we see something that's complex, it draws our interest and I think makes us able to appreciate it more based off of the amount of complexity that's there. Uh, I, I think it's an interest thing as much as anything else, just the more there is to learn, the more there is for us to focus on, the more carefully we'll observe it perhaps. So maybe it like puts us into a flow state when we're completely absorbed with it. So even though it's challenging us, it's, it's still completely absorbing our attention. And so we find it beautiful. I think that's certainly a, certainly a, a part of any feature of something that we consider beautiful is we love to look at it. We lose ourselves in it. We, uh, we just don't want to tear our eyes away. And so, yeah, absolutely absorbing. Right, yeah, that, yeah, the, the driving us into a flow straight, yeah, something that takes over your 
thoughts and just consumes all of it consumes all of your time thinking that is definitely the madness side of the beauty i i think i have to chime in um i i see a lot of beauty um all the time but uh one of my sort of peak experiences is related to flow state um i used to do a lot of work with machining um, and manually machining where you're actually turning the the knobs as you cut metal um and you sort of you're you're paying attention visually to what's going on very careful visual attention um but you're also listening to the metal cut to give you some kind of information about the essentially the the mechanics of the cut um it was a fairly frequent occurrence that it felt like my visual system sort of detached from my body, that I was down in the work piece and just, yeah, sort of, yeah, disembodied and, um, and yeah, my, my being existed in the work, um, at that moment. And I mean, it was a great place to be. It helps you produce good work that way. Um, and uh yeah if, if you're making art and you can get into that state i assume also music um incredible uh thing but um above all it was it was astoundingly beautiful um to have complete focus on one sort of set of visual criteria and um no distractions i love that i love that it's an experience uh rather than just something that you're viewing or something that you're hearing it's an entire it's like all encompassing i totally agree with the the mind uh centeredness and the focus that you get when you're working on a piece of art and how you're just trying so hard to achieve what you have in your brain and you're so focused on trying to get it right the way that you want it to be the way that you find it beautiful it is a wonderful absorption that you can just ignore everything else and focus on that. Yeah. So I can also speak to that kind of state of mind because I'm going to be making the music for this episode. And when I play guitar, I, I started playing guitar right before I went into high school and it was, it was maddeningly beautiful and in the definition that we've established here, absolutely. Because it's something that I could um, get so absorbed in that I forgot to eat for an entire day. Like I would play for like eight hours, you know, literally. And I'd forget to eat. And sometimes I would forget to breathe because I was so focused on it. So I can, I can relate to that. <laughs> state of mind for sure isn't it incredible that we can get there yeah. <laughs> yeah i guess i uh i'm trying to think of a moment like that that i've had and i can only think of like i right now off the top of my head i i'm thinking about experiences that i had when i was running uh and i really love running outside i don't like running on treadmills uh because you're like it's more i don't know something about it it feels more like you're escaping um, and you can just go into your mind and get lost and you don't even know how far you've run. You don't know how, where you are at the end of it. Uh, you find yourself in a new place. <laughs> and yeah, you, like I'm actually just going for walks too. It's not just running, but walking. I, I, I love going for walks. I go almost every day for a walk. <laughs> just like clears your who's, mind, you get lost in it. Who's the guy that went for like four hour walks every day? Was that 
don't know. Um, Waldo, maybe. He was he was a transcendental author, poet, something Emerson. like that. Emerson, oh, that's right. Oh, what's Emerson? Yeah, he went for like four hour walks every day. Oh my gosh. Okay, well, something to aspire to there. <laughs> yeah, so um, okay, so now thank you so much for answering those those like broad questions and just getting into more of the nitty-gritty of what you individually uh, experience as maddeningly beautiful. That your answers are amazing. Okay. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, we've covered quite a diverse range of topics in this episode. I hope you can appreciate as much as I have the interconnectedness between Van Gogh, neurodiversity, fractals, beauty in art and science, and somehow (laughs) even chapstick. In this episode, we also learned about the immense importance of science communication and how art can spark enthusiasm and educate the public about science, which grants us unique access to sublime, enchanting worlds not visible to the naked eye. A simple peek through the microscope can transport you into a Narnia-like landscape, which can be equally artistic and captivating. Nature, too, often grips us with fractal art, among so many other phenomena. A central theme in our podcast, emphasized in past episodes, is that every brain is different. Say it with me. There are 7 billion different brains, and therefore 7 billion different ways to experience life. And since there are so many ways to perceive the world, there's also so many perspectives to appreciate. In this episode, we discussed neurodiversity and gained insight into how Vincent van Gogh's perspective helped inspire his art. We also heard some lovely stories from Meredith Carrington about her son, who's on the autism spectrum, and the experiences he has shared with her that shed light onto his rich inner life and how he experiences the world. The brain really is a beautiful and maddening thing. Special thanks and acknowledgements to our esteemed guests, Dr. Cliff Edwards and Meredith Carrington from Virginia Commonwealth University, Dr. Ann Martin and Nate Hess from the University of Oregon, and the talented artist and science communicator, Hannah Ayub. Important correction, Ms. Carrington is now the creative director of the Institute for Contemporary Art at VCU. She has moved on from the position she held at the time of the recording. To learn more about Van Gogh, be sure to check out Dr. Edwards' books. He's written five. They are titled Van Gogh's Second Gift, Van Gogh and God, The Shoes of Van Gogh, Mystery of the Night Cafe, and Van Gogh's Ghost Paintings. To learn more about Artsy Oregon and Dr. Martin's efforts to bridge the gap between art and science, check out her website at artsyoregon.com, spelled A-R-T-S-C-I-Oregon.com. Student participants were Dr. Megan Syad, Rosamond Goodson, Andy Pitts, Dr. Kristen Lee, Martina Hernandez, Alan Harris, and myself. This episode of Crossmodal was produced and directed by Dr. Nico Ikanum and edited by Dr. Nico Ikanum and Andy Pitts. Our logo was designed by Hannah Ayu. Our theme track was produced by Josh Rodenberg. Andy Pitts produced the composition played throughout the episode entitled Samba Horizon. Special considerations to Andy Pitts for introducing us to the wonderful world of audio engineering and providing us with equipment. Get in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram at crossmodal underscore pod or by sending an email to heycrossmodal at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Be sure to come back next time for our fourth episode all about fear and neurocinematics, just in time for spooky season. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for tuning in and stay safe out there, y'all. Until next time. 
This episode is dedicated to a certain someone that I met during one of the featured discussions. Meeting you has seriously changed my life for the better. Thank you.